Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. September 17, 1995. Twelve miles east of Johannesburg, South Africa, a police reservist is taking the day off to hunt rabbits in one of the vast fields called Veld's. Suddenly, the stench of decomposing flesh fills the air. Women's bodies at varying degrees of decomposition lay before him. Ten in all. Some of them were quite fresh, and some of them were dehydrated, and some of them were skeletons. Police arrive quickly and fan out over the area. They believe this killing field is the work of the serial killer they had been tracking for more than a year. At first, they had found victims one by one, but this discovery demonstrates that the killer has become more adept and more daring. The bodies of 30 women have now been found in similar fields from Johannesburg to Pretoria. The victims were all black and between the ages of 19 and 43. All had been strangled with articles of clothing, panties, bras, stockings. Leon Nell was one of the lead investigators on the case. He used sticks to actually wind the stocking and or um, clothing around the necks. The first body connected to the killer was found on July 16, 1994, outside of Johannesburg. Soon after, two more victims turned up. Superintendent Vinyl Phil Yoon began to see a pattern. The scenes were similar to each other. We started looking into the fact that it can be a serial killer. One young mother had her hands bound with her own brassiere. A few feet away was the body of her infant son. As the year wore on, police would discover a body every two weeks, then once a week, then two every week. Yes, I'm very afraid. I can't even walk in the, in the, in, in the night. Now, less than a year after the end of apartheid, black women were subject to a new form of tyranny. I think uh, he's, he's making all the women scared. And then I don't feel very good about it. And when we go around in town or whatever, because we don't know where he stays. So I was very scared and don't know what to do. Back to find that man, they, are, they, must, they must fight to, they must fight to, to, to get you. The police can't cope with this type of criminal activity without the wholehearted support of the community. And we would like to appeal to the community once again to come forward with any 
any portion of possible information. So brutal were the crimes, President Nelson Mandela made a personal visit to the desolate killing field. Investigators had found DNA evidence and many leads, but no clear suspects. We didn't know who we were looking for. It was, um, it could be anybody. It's a race against time to catch him before he kills another innocent person. Then, while sifting through evidence, police investigator Leon Nell remembered a recent news story about a missing woman. There was an article in the Star newspaper about a, a lady, Jofina Mokhotsi. She disappeared under very suspicious circumstances. Nell wondered if Trifina could be another victim of the serial killer. He decided to question her co-workers. One of them remembered a man who had come to their workplace and offered Trifina a job just days before she disappeared. This matched stories told by the family members of other victims. But this time, Trifina's friend, Esther Malangu, remembered a name. He told us that his Moses he told told us his name. Nell ran a check with the name Moses Sitoli and uncovered one man who had been convicted of rape. Police showed Sitole's picture to Trafina's co-workers and they positively identified him. Detectives went to Sitole's home but found that he had left his common-law wife, Martha, and his daughter, Brahit, a few weeks before. Sitole seemed to be one step ahead of them. Investigators put Sitole's picture on the front page of newspapers all over the country. Every day that he's uh, out uh, and walking around the streets of South Africa, it can be another female that fall victim to him. And it became an obsession to me to apprehend him as quick as possible to stop him from killing another innocent person. October 1995, South African police were on the trail of suspected serial killer Moses Sitole. They knew his name, but they had no idea where he was. Then on October 18th, after receiving a tip from Sitole's brother-in-law, detectives were finally able to arrest Sitole. The man suspected of murdering 37 women and one child was finally in custody. Esther Malangu, a friend of one of the victims, was relieved to hear the news. The woman I'm working with, with screaming, saying that that's it, they catch him at last. We're going to be safe now. While Sitole awaited trial, a fellow inmate managed to secretly videotape an interview with him. Sitole felt that he had been betrayed by women his whole life and that his hatred was justified. When we try to understand a serial killer, or any criminal for that matter, things have to be looked at. How and where this person grew up. Moses was the fourth child of Sophie and Simon Tangawira Sitole. He was born on November 17, 1964, 
in the South African township of Fosloras. It was a time when the apartheid government controlled blacks by segregating them in isolated areas. Any dissent was met with extreme force. Many black leaders were jailed. As a youth, Moses Sitole saw resistance to this oppression turn violent. The moment you wake up in the morning to the moment you, you know, lay down to sleep, it's this struggle against this government, this oppressive power, and it affects everything that you do in your life. Black workers were forced to live in company housing near the factories and mines where they were employed. Moses was a bright and curious boy, but he had few opportunities for education. Life within his tin-roofed home was difficult. He'd been abused by his mother, who he says was an alcoholic, from a stepsister that he says abused him from being raped by a woman uh, in his younger years. Then, when he was six years old, Moses' father died. Because Simon Satole was the sole provider, Sophie and her six children were evicted from their home. Moses spent the remainder of his childhood bouncing from one poorly run youth home to another. Sitole described these conditions more than 20 years later during his prison interview. The treatment was bad, really bad. You had to be strong to survive. Miserable, Moses escaped when he was about eight years old and tried to return to his mother. He made his way home crossing vast belts and passing through shanty towns. But there was no joyous reunion. Instead, his mother sent the boy back to the orphanage. Hurt has been my daily bread. Hurt has been my prayer. Every minute, every second, every day, every week, every month, and every year. Because of a feeling of powerlessness, starts to fantasize about a way to obtain power. When he was about 11, Moses was moved to yet another orphanage in KwaZulu-Natal, an apartheid-designated black homeland near the Indian Ocean. In his early teens, Moses ran away again. He hitchhiked 300 miles back to Fosloris to stay with his older brother, Patrick. Now on his own, Moses worked menial jobs. He trained as an amateur boxer, building his strength. He also became popular with local women for his charm and disarming smile. Sitole's defense attorney, Eben Jordan. What I can tell you, he is a very intelligent man. Uh, Well-spoken. He was, apparently he was a member of the library in Pretoria. He took out classic, classical music CDs. But his friendly demeanor hit a warped view of women. He was quick to anger. The slightest rejection from a member of the opposite sex could trigger a violent rage. The first time Sitole acted on these impulses came in 1987, when he attacked his girlfriend's sister, 38-year-old Patricia Kumalo. He lured her uh, to the mine dump in Cleveland, Johannesburg, where he raped her. 
left Kamalo tied up with her clothing thrown up over her face. She managed to escape, but fearing for her life, she never went to the authorities. Zitole had not yet killed, but like other serial killers, this first crime established a pattern, one that would become more violent and complex over the next eight years. all have a fantasy which which is the basic blueprint of what they do the problem is reality is never as perfect as fantasy so they keep on repeating it in order to get it right to get it perfect and and the problem is it will never be as perfect as it is in your fantasy a desolate veld outside of Johannesburg would soon become the stage for Moses Sitole's twisted fantasies of power and death Johannesburg, South Africa, 1987. 22-year-old Moses Sitole had raped his first victim. Because she was too afraid to tell the police, Sitole was able to assault another woman. His actions became more violent over time. His third victim, Lindiwi Nikosi, was another girlfriend's sister. He lured her to a remote spot then threatened to pour gasoline on her and set her on fire if she didn't submit. After raping Nikosi, he choked her until she lost consciousness. When she revived, he told her he would kill her if she went to the authorities. She too kept silent. Emboldened, Sitoli committed more rapes. There's incredible tension building up in him. It's almost like an urge. He must get to this point where he's going to, 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 to stalk, to find uh, a person, the, the right person. And also all the tension and planning that goes behind getting the right person and then actually uh, acting out the plan that he has been fantasizing. Investigator Leon Nell would see that Sitole's victims fit a profile. Why does Sitole go for um, ladies that are looking for work? They were easy targets. Sitole met Doris Swakamisa in Germiston in February 1989. At the time, Sitole worked as a store clerk, but he told Doris that he was a successful businessman from a neighboring town. Sitole promised Doris employment and offered to personally escort her to her new job. When they arrived at the train station, Sitole told Swakamisa that they could take a shortcut through the Veld. Once they had walked far enough so no one would hear her screams, Sitole pulled out a knife hidden in a folded newspaper and told Doris he was going to rape her. Sitole tied Swakamisa's hands with her underwear, then assaulted her. He claimed he would not kill her if she promised not to tell anyone. He then left her in the veld with her hands and feet bound. Three months later, Doris Swakamisa spotted Moses Sitole in a shop in downtown Johannesburg. She called the police in the South African town of Cleveland where the rape took place. Sitole was arrested. He was loaded with the victim in the back of a police vehicle. On the way to the Cleveland police station, he then said to her, which I should have killed you. Sitole claimed he was innocent, saying Doris had picked the wrong man. But the judge didn't believe his story. 
Satoli was sentenced to seven years in prison. This perceived injustice became another betrayal in his mind, one that deepened his anger. In prison, Satoli insisted that he hadn't hurt anyone. His warped view of women apparently kept him from seeing the irony of his own statements. I regret not having killed the first lady that falsely accused me. Satoli had used fear to control the women he raped. Now, he became the victim. Satoli would later tell Superintendent Vinyl Filiun about that difficult time. He was sodomized by uh, co-inmates, uh, assaulted and rejected by them for being a rapist. Satoli outwardly maintained his calm demeanor. To the guards, he appeared to be a model prisoner. He bided his time, concentrating on survival and cultivating his rage. On one visitor's day, he met Martha and Lovu, the sister of another inmate. After his release in November 1993, he moved in with Martha over the objections of her family. Her family was not exactly satisfied that Martha could love me. Her mother's objection that I came from prison, how could she love me? And although the couple was not legally married, she was considered to be Satole's wife. He soon began working with Martha's brother fixing cars in the yard of her father's home. It was a humble beginning, but it seemed Satole was starting a new life. Across South Africa, it was a time of unprecedented hope. Nelson Mandela was elected president, and new possibilities were emerging for black South Africans. But for Sitole, freedom provided a different kind of opportunity. For the first time, black South Africans felt they were able to travel freely across the country. Many small-town women came to the cities looking for work. Their naivete and gentle country manners made them especially vulnerable to a sexual predator like Sitole. After a few months, Sitole stopped working as a mechanic. Each morning, he left the house with a folded newspaper under his arm. He claimed to be looking for work, but he was actually preparing to commit his first murder. Like many other serial killers, Sitole focused his rage on the most marginal groups in his society. In this case, unemployed black women. For every crime, there's a buildup of tension. They experience certain trigger events. It could be a conflict with a female or even just another person, which acts as the final trigger as to why they go and commit the murders. In early July 1994, Sitole met 19-year-old Maria Monama on the streets of Pretoria. He had a type of personality that people, and specifically women, could, could fall for very easily. Sitole, who introduced himself as Sylvester, was neatly dressed. He charmed the young woman and her family. He was able to make himself into this presentable person that middle-class people were able to invite into their home. 
hopes and even contemplate having their daughter date or entrusting their child to his care. Soon after, Sitole lured Maria to a remote veld and strangled her. It was his first murder. It's sort of a masterpiece of a thing that happens during the day and no one can see. Even if there were people around, it's so quick that it takes a split of a second to put everything under control. When Maria's body was found, there was a cryptic note scrawled on her leg. I am not fighting with you. We will stay here until you understand. Satole reveled in his first kill and began planning his next one. After he committed the act, the fantasizing takes basically control of his life. The acts just become more violent, more gruesome, more grisly, because he needs his urge to be satisfied. He's got this um, addiction to the omnipotent power where he thinks he's actually God and he is in control. The only screaming was, please don't kill, do anything, but don't kill me. Some of them will pray to me like a god. By July 1994, South African Moses Sitole had progressed from rape to murder. Over the next four months, he assaulted and strangled five women. Inspector Leon Nell was part of a manhunt for the elusive serial killer. Sitole had managed to stay one step ahead of police. Right from the outset, we had problems. We were busy with the post-mortem um, in Johannesburg Mortuary. When they would call, um, there's another scene. The police would go and remove the body, process the crime scene, and two days later, you'd have a body at the same spot. That's very arrogant. The local papers gave detailed accounts about how the killer cleverly lured his victims into the veld. The notoriety only fueled Sitole's desire for violence. Very often serial killers are thrill-seeking. They love the media attention. They absolutely adore to be the pivot uh, around which so much activity goes on. As Sitole grew more adept at killing, he developed an intricate system for attracting victims. First, he would approach a woman who was looking for work, and he would claim to have a high-paying job for her. Then, he would slowly earn her trust. After interviewing relatives of Sitole's victims, Police Superintendent Vinyl Filion noticed a pattern. He says he'll be able to help her to get work. Uh, then he'll make an, another appointment with her. Uh, then they'll sit and just discuss ordinary things, drink cold drinks, and then make another appointment. Then he'll say to her, okay, let me take you to where I can get you a work. In the final phase, Satole would arrange to meet the woman in a crowded area where they wouldn't be noticed. Satole would then flag down one of the hundreds of minibuses that work as taxis in the black areas of Johannesburg. Investigators believed that Satole acted out this elaborate hoax because he found pleasure in manipulating his victims. So we mustn't just isolate the rape and the murder as the crime, but rather what happens before, during and after. Even while he's walking with his victims, he's already successful. He's convincing them to come with him. Sitole would have the minibus drop them off near an opening to the veld. Not an uncommon request, as footpaths through the fields were often used as shortcuts. He would lead his victim down the path and out of sight, then take out his knife and make her disrobe. 
he could not just control the life of, of the woman that he was about to kill, but he also could control her emotions. He could make her so scared, most probably pleading for help, but it must have increased his feeling of being powerful tremendously. After raping the woman, he would often strangle her with her own underwear. When you strangle a person, you can actually release your hold and the person will regain consciousness. And if you put pressure, they can actually lose consciousness again. So you can extend the period of death. It's every serial killer's fantasy. Satole would torture his victim. He had learned how to kill slowly. He used quite sophisticated systems where he would take the, the strap from the victim's handbag, put it around their neck, and tie it to a low branch on a tree. It was another technique that would prolong Satole's sensation of ultimate power. And he would sit and watch while the victim stood there. And eventually, after an hour or two, the victim was unable to stand upright any longer and would lower themselves and, and actually strangle themselves. At a certain point, rape and murder were not enough for Satole. He began to taunt the families of his victims. He called the grandmother of one woman and told her, it serves you well. You are now walking over the grave of Monica. Satole now believed he could manipulate anyone at will. Moses Satole also once phoned the police anonymously and gave them a name of his brother-in-law or somebody, um, which uh, the detectives actually picked up and interrogated. And when the guy got home, he would tell Moses Satole about the interrogation, which I think was a very clever way for Moses to find out what do they know and what do they ask. But his friends and relatives still believed that he was leaving the house each day to look for work. On December 5th, 1994, his wife Martha gave birth to a baby girl. She had no idea that her husband was a killer. By July 1995, Moses Satole had strangled 18 young women and discarded their bodies in the fields outside of Pretoria and Johannesburg. Police pursued every lead they had, but still couldn't put a name or face on the killer. Texas and myself, we do get very demoralized. Um, it is a very stressful um, period, especially if, it's, if it is extended. Um, and you do eventually feel responsible for the women who killed. It's another innocent life. Whenever a serial killer is on the loose, the community in which such a person operates is becoming extremely frightened. We have to be actually careful that we don't walk at night alone. We don't do that, the things that will actually make us to be targets. South African women had become more cautious and Satole needed a more sophisticated plan for luring his victims. He read the newspaper daily and kept abreast of the changing conditions in the country. In time, he began to see a way to take advantage of the social reform. Satole, who had grown up mostly in orphanages, invented a fictitious social service agency called Youth Against Human Abuse. The supposed mission of the organization was to reunite orphans and their families. He claimed he was looking for new employees and began distributing phony job applications to women. In August 1995, Satole got in touch with a prominent photographer and introduced himself and his organization. 
Satoli told the man that he needed to find a group home for two homeless children. The photographer helped him get access to a children's home called Kids Haven. Outside the center's laundry, he met Trifina Mahotsi, a single mother who supported an extended family by working at Kids Haven. Trifina's friend and co-worker, Esther Malangu, remembers that day. She was staying with her mother and one sister and two brothers in Pedroza. And she was the only person who was working. He offered Trifina a hefty bonus. If she would come work for Youth Against Human Abuse, Trifina quickly took an application. She was thinking of I'm going to support all my family. So she was happy, very much happy. Sitoli returned the next day to tell Trifina that her application had been accepted. He made an appointment to take her to her new job. He would meet her at the train station and they would travel together. I was very much jealous about Trifina. She's going to get a new job and the huge money like that. But Trifina was never heard from again. Her disappearance would eventually lead investigators to Moses Sitole. By August 1995, Moses Sitole had killed 20 women. He had dumped their bodies in the isolated areas around Johannesburg. On the morning of the 15th, he left his home in Adridgeville and took the train to Benoni on his way to meet Trifina Mahotsi. Zitole had promised to take her to a new job, but instead, he led her into a remote field and strangled her. When Trifina didn't come home, her sister Noketi began to worry. We started to panic and my mother stood up and went to the police stations. The newspapers published a photo of the missing woman. One month later, a police reservist stumbled across a field near Boxburg Prison littered with bodies. Trifina Mohotzi's body was one of the 10 found there. The black community held a prayer vigil for the murdered women and demanded swift justice. As a black man in that community, if I know that you did that to my sister, my mother, my daughter, I'm not gonna wait for the police to come and give me any kind of justice. I will get people together and you will be punished. Inspector Leon Nell and his team canvassed a children's home called Kids Haven where Trifina had worked. Through her co-workers, police learned that on the day she disappeared, she had gone to meet a man named Moses Sitole. But Sitole is a common name in South Africa. So Nell returned to the facility and passed around a mugshot of a specific man, a Moses Sitole who had been arrested for rape in 1989. We showed it to uh, the people at Kitshaven, Esther Mushlangu, and the other relevant people that uh, pointed him out, and that's how we knew it was uh, Moses Sitole. Authorities finally knew the identity of the serial killer they had been seeking for over a year. But as investigators closed in, Sitole developed a new scheme to evade capture. He called members of the press in an attempt to gain information about the investigation. At six o'clock on October 2nd, 1995, the phone rang in the newsroom of the Johannesburg Star. Reporter Tamsin De Beer took the call. 
I answered the phone and I heard the words, I'm the man that everyone is looking for. The person on the other end of the line introduced himself as Joseph and claimed to be responsible for the murders. It was like alarm bells ringing in my head, like get your typing fingers going, get your wits about you. De Beer quickly began to transcribe the call. Over the next days, she and the killer would have three lengthy conversations. He would call from a, a phone booth, and there was a degree of trust that we were building up. He was a very well-spoken, charming person on the, on the telephone. I mean, he had, a, he had an accent, so English wasn't his first language, so I imagine in his first language he was quite, quite charming. He told De Beer he was killing out of revenge for being wrongly convicted of rape. He claimed the murders were committed to draw attention to the injustice he had suffered. He didn't want to be caught by the police. That was, in fact, his motive for calling. He wanted to outsmart them. De Beer thought it might be a hoax, but the caller gave vivid descriptions of the killings. As the calls continued, Sitole confided more and more to 26-year-old De Beer. He described how some women would fight, other women would just give up. It was of some interest to him, I think, how certain women would respond and others would fight. I remember him saying that some women were as strong as men, and he really struggled with them. De Beer contacted the police and gave them transcripts of the conversation. Still, they were not certain that she was dealing with the actual killer. The next time Joseph called, she asked him to prove he was the serial murderer. He then told her the location of a body in the Eastern Rand area of Johannesburg that the police had not yet found. It wasn't a recent victim. He said there was a piece of metal um, over her body and that he had gone back and he had lifted up the piece of metal and found her there and she was basically a skeleton at this point. De Beer relayed the information to the authorities. After several searches, investigators discovered the woman in a veld outside Johannesburg. He then described where another body was, a relatively fresh one, that she was hanging half in a tree. Police found that body just as Joseph described. It was the killer's latest victim, a 31-year-old woman who had disappeared just the day before. Police were waiting nearby when Satole contacted De Beer for the third time. When the money ran out on Satole's payphone, De Beer asked for the number to call him back, and he gave it to her. Investigators traced the number to a nearby train station. De Beer kept Satole on the line while officers rushed to the station. He said, hang on, and the phone went dead. There was nothing. And I was, I remember, on the line going, hello, 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 hello. De Beer was upset. During the course of their phone conversations, she had begun to feel empathy for him. I was quite alarmed that perhaps the police had shot him. Um, and I remember thinking, no, shame, you know, this, this poor man out there, this lost, broken person, which of course he was, but he was also a monster. Satole was now on the run, and police were desperate to catch him before he killed again. On October 13, 1995, his photo appeared on television and in newspapers from Johannesburg to Pretoria. That evening, Tamsin De Beer's phone rang again. This Joseph character basically shouted at me about how could I have done that? But what did I do? We had a, a trust going. I broke the trust. 
A few days later, Moses Atole got in touch with his brother-in-law, Maxwell Makabene. Hoping to get a gun, Makabene told Satole he would help. He arranged to meet Satole at the factory where he worked. Maxwell then called the police. Undercover police officer Francis Molovetsi was posted at the gate, ready to arrest the murderer. When Satole arrived, he sensed the trap and fled. He ran into a dark alley. Officer Molovetsi was close behind. Suddenly, Sitole turned and took a swipe at the officer with an axe. In response, Molovetsi fired several shots. Sitole was hit in the abdomen and the leg. Police rushed him to the hospital. Vinyl Phil Hune tried to interrogate Sitole, but he was uncooperative. I asked him, Moses, did we find all the victims? So his answer to me was, I don't know. And I started thinking, what does he mean by I don't know? So I asked him again, Moses, did we find all the victims? And he said to me, I don't know, because I wasn't with you. Investigators reasoned that since Sitoli's victims were women, a female detective might be better able to draw him out. The strategy worked. He became aroused at the thought of his crimes and masturbated while describing them to her. He started bragging to her how he killed them, how what he did, and that sort of thing. When asked why he raped and strangled 37 women, Moses Sitoli said, I did it to teach them a lesson. October 18, 1995, serial killer Moses Sitole was shot during his arrest. After recovering from his wounds, Sitole was transferred to a prison near Pretoria to await trial. There, he received numerous death threats from angry citizens. Sitole was heavily guarded by an elite police unit. Leon Nell remembers the tense situation. We uh, did not want anything to happen to Moses. We wanted to have a fair trial. While in prison, a fellow inmate, Derek Schoolman, gained Satole's confidence. He managed to smuggle recording equipment into the prison and taped their conversations. Strangle Who beat him? No, I didn't beat anybody. Just yeah. How long? How long does it take for someone to die for me to strangle them? Satole described his intense anger toward women. I fully hate a black woman. A woman can hurt you more than a man, more than anybody in this world. On October 21st, 1996, Moses Satole was charged in the Pretoria High Court with 38 murders and 40 rapes. There was uh, much more ladies he raped and killed that, that we knew about, but there wasn't uh, sufficient evidence to obviously charge him uh, on these uh, cases. More than 140 witnesses testified for the state, including Trifina Mohotzi's best friend, Esther Melango. When we go to the court, 
with Moses Zitole. I was very much scared, but I did go through this uh, court thing. And then we went inside, and then Moses Zitole, he was there. Zitole did his best to intimidate the witnesses. When I was giving my story, and then he was just laughing at me, and he was shaking his head. DNA linked Satole to the murders, but his jailhouse confession was the most chilling evidence. In the video, he appears relaxed as he boasts about his crimes. If he's riding on the spot, and the decision, the final decision, not here, she must die. She can see it. I, I, she died. She can see it. No chance. Nothing will help said one of the women knew karate and that he had struggled with her for hours. Yeah, I gave her a chance to fight. And when we fight, I tell her, if you lose, you die. Outside the courtroom, women banded together and voiced their anger in song. Here they are chanting, why are you killing us, Sitole? Why are you killing us? When the crowds heard about Sitole's arrogance, they demanded the judge turn him over so they could punish him themselves. The death penalty had been recently abolished in post-apartheid South Africa but the court made certain Sitole would never kill again. On December 5th, 1997, with his defense attorney, Eben Jordan, nearby, Moses Sitole was sentenced to 2,410 years in prison. He was shocked. He believed throughout that he would be acquitted. I was feeling that, like that, that time, that they must kill him too. Because some of the women, they left their children they left their families because of him. Yes, we're happy about the sentence, but we've lost our sister, and my mother lost her daughter. Sitoli was taken from court to the maximum security facility of Pretoria's central prison, where he was held without chance of pardon or parole. Diagnosed with AIDS after his arrest, Sitoli received antiviral drugs and benefited from the prison hospital. His wife Martha and Lovu and their daughter Rahit were not as lucky. They were also infected, but like millions of other poor Africans, they did not have the money for medications. Moses Sitole began his terrifying killing spree at a time when black Africans had enormous hopes for the future. At that point in history, he could have made himself uh, into the person that he pretended to be. Instead, he took the lives of 37 women and one child, spreading heartbreak and fear throughout his community. I feel so painful when I, I remember my daughter going out, saying he's going to look for work, and he never came back. Who they are, where they are from, I didn't care. It's just the type of woman that reminds me of the woman who falsely accused me. And then I just kill her.
it is very important to understand they need to feel in control of everything. Feeling in control, not only of the woman he was killing and raping, but of the whole world around him. Some experts believe that Satole's warped perception of women was formed early in childhood as a result of abuse. But they say even that doesn't explain everything. We cannot say that there's a cause and effect between being abused as a child and then later becoming a criminal because so many people successfully overcome what has happened to them as children. I was out there to do a job, the job that has been done to me, the thing that I have to give back, eye for eye. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. So I, I know you've got a lot going on. But remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening, because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better, because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7.